Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. Gary Anderson joins us to review the 2018 Formula One season from a technical perspective. The 2018 Formula One season produced one of the most intense development wars we've seen in a long time in Grand Prix racing. It's been a fantastic season. Mercedes, of course, coming out on top. So this is our chance to look back at the season from a technical perspective. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to look back at the season first is Gary Anderson. I mean, Gary, would you agree this has been a particularly good season in terms of the ferocity of the competition? I'm particularly thinking the two teams at the front. Yeah, I mean, Mercedes and Ferrari fought from the first race, really. Um, but it wasn't only just car development, it was actually team development. I think both of them had to uh, dig deeper because because of the way the tyres were this year and, and uh, as I call it, nursing the tyres, it meant you had to sort of think a bit more on your feet. So, uh, yes, car parts are very, very important and obviously the tyres respond to that quite well. But again, even during the races, you know, there was decisions to be made. Sometimes Mercedes made wrong ones, sometimes Ferrari made wrong ones. But at the end of the day, I think Mer- Mercedes just showed that little bit more in-depth understanding of everything to optimise it for the second part of the season, which is obviously the very important part. I mean, you've got to respond. You've got to respond both with the car and with the team and with the organisation. And I think Mercedes did that little, that little bit better. 
Well, we're going to dig into the Mercedes-Ferrari battle in some depth in a moment. But first, I'll introduce my second guest, uh, Jake Boxer-Leg. Now, this is your first Autosport podcast. You've joined us relatively recently as a as technical editor, so people are going to be hearing a lot more from you in the future in your, your technical work. So um, it's a good time to come in with new regs next year, and it's already been quite interesting this year, so good time. Yeah, definitely. It's been very, very interesting to see what teams are coming up with. Uh, we're lucky enough to get to Abu Dhabi and speak to some of the teams about what they've got in store for 2019. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see if there's a change in the packing order and uh, what they're able to carry over from this year as well. Well, let's get down to it then. Gary, the, the Mercedes-Ferrari battle, it, it sort of waxed and waned throughout much of the season. Mercedes, obviously, towards the end, had the upper hand. But for a big part of the year, it was very much fighting tooth and nail, wasn't it? How did you see the the development war that went on between them and and the kind of starting points they were at? Because in testing, it looked like Mercedes had the edge. And then they did have the edge eventually in Australia. And then there was that run of races where Ferrari uh, was winning. Yeah, I mean, it, it did change from uh, as you went through the races. And I think with anything like that, you know, you've got to recognize where you are in reality and the heat of the moment. You can do all the testing you want, but you know, the fuel loads or how hard is a driver pushing? It's always another driver, another team pushing. It's always very difficult to sort of really get detail on that until you get to the first race. And you know that on a Saturday afternoon during qualifying, everybody's going to be given everything they can. And in the race, you know, the, you look at the the management of the tyres, how many laps they got on it and how hard they were pushing to do that. So you get a real picture after the first race. And as you say, Mercedes were well ahead of Ferrari at, at that first race. But, uh, you know, as the season progressed, Ferrari really did do a strong job up to the sort of middle of the year. And I think then they put, as we, we believe, they put a, an underfloor in the car, a modification to it that caused them some grief and um, they lost their way a little bit and it really doesn't take much you know we're talking here about 0.1 of a percent and 0.2 of a percent making the big difference so it doesn't take much to sort of make you that you you just can't quite get the momentum to catch up and if you you know if the Mercedes gets ahead of you then you you know you're not able to put the pressure on them so they they become more consistent and more confident in their decisions because you're not putting the pressure on them because they know they can do it so it's a bit of a tit, tit for tat during that period of the season but i i would hate to sort of say that i think ferrari probably lost the championship in the the third quarter of the season really to be honest it, it lost its way a little bit and too many incidents with vettel um i think they, they definitely had more problems than uh, their Mercedes at a crucial time in the season whenever there was an ability to, to pull away or to keep the pressure on at least. Well, Jake, from what we, we saw that we saw the Ferrari seem to be quite a, a consistent car and they seem to find it quite easy to get the best out of it. Mercedes, particularly early in the season, was a bit up and down. Actually, Australia was a good example because they were kind of nip and up with Ferrari through much of the weekend. And the last run of, of Q3, Daniel Ricciardo got in the way on the outlap and Hamilton backed off and he just fluked, basically getting the tyres perfectly prepped for the lap and suddenly just over six tenths up the road. So is that what you've kind of agreed with seeing this year, that the Ferrari's probably been an easier car to get the most out of but the Mercedes, when it's been strong and working well, has by and large had that edge? Uh, certainly. Um, and I think Lewis Hamilton said after Abu Dhabi that it's the season in which he's probably had to work hardest to get the most out of the car. Um we know that both cars have been incredibly good. Um, it seems that the Ferrari was a little bit more intuitive, a little bit more user-friendly, but I think the potential of it was ultimately wasted and it kind of came in Germany when Vettel, you know, completely unforced error ended up in the uh, ended up in the gravel and in the barrier. And that was the turning point and Mercedes suddenly had this momentum behind them. Uh, upgrades throughout the season started to build and build and build until 
eventually they had the car uh, to beat and Ferrari were scratching their heads a little bit, wondering what happened. Well, certainly it's interesting, isn't it, Gary, the point you make that's probably a season Ferrari lost. If you look at it, 88 points was the gap in the championship, Vettel to Hamilton. Vettel, you can pretty easily make a case for there being 88 lost points for him, maybe even a little bit more. And then because Raikkonen had Bottas covered in the in the drivers' championship, that means Ferrari could also win the constructors. So, yeah, Ferrari have reason to be kicking themselves, don't they? They definitely do have reason to be kicking themselves. And, you know, all this sort of stuff happens, but it's about reacting to it and, and making sure that you don't let it happen twice. You know, once is just a bit foolish, but twice is stupid. And, um, and they didn't seem to do that. That was the problem. I mean, as I say, you, you could add up a lot of the points that Vettel threw away. Um, you know, Paul Ricard run, running into Bottas on the first lap, damaging the car. There's a, whole, there's a whole list of them you could put in there. Now, you'd be inventing points for him if you did that because you know they happen, these incidents happen very early in the race but as Jake says the you know the incident in, the, in Hockenheim um, driving into the barrier in those damp conditions a professional driver challenging for the championship really shouldn't be doing that that's that's the mistakes that you you know you very 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 seldom see Lewis Hamilton make but if you do take Mercedes and you do take Lewis Hamilton I think it shows the depth that Lewis is driving at because he definitely just obliterated Bottas this year. I mean, Bottas had nowhere to go really. A couple of occasions he was pretty competitive and you probably could have said he should have won maybe a couple of races. But the reality of it is those other races, the other 19, which is a big number, he you know he wasn't really in the same league as uh, as uh, Lewis Hamilton. So they Mercedes haven't got a second driver that's pulling in you know the big points that should be there. So I think seeing that Ferrari might have won the constructors I think Mercedes have got something in hand if they had a, another driver in there that could really nip at uh, Lewis's heels. I mean, we mentioned the the tyre troubles that Mercedes in particular had. Occasionally others others had it. Why do we think it's so difficult for Mercedes to, to get on top of them, particularly early in the season? Australia was tricky. Um, Bahrain, the rear overheating was a bit challenging. China they struggled with. There, there was a, a bunch of races later in the season as well where there were slightly less extreme troubles. But this seemed to be a consistent problem for, for the team and that seems to have carried over from, from last year's car as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's the balance between getting the tires working well for one lap, the car that you know really goes out there and your tires are right at their working um, pace. And it's not just temperature; it's uh, you know the temperature control because of the tire pressures that uh, Pirelli um, instigate for the cars to run the minimum tire pressures. It's a bit of a, a bit of a false dawn thing because, in theory, you can't take them out of the blankets um, any lower than a certain a certain pressure. So let's say on the rear is twenty one psi. So you, you want to have the, that pressure when you take them out of the blankets because that's legally you have to. So you have to warm them up quite a lot before you even start the lap. And then when the driver's out there, he goes slow to let the rear tyre pressure drop down. He can heat up the front bre- front brakes and heat front tyres quite quickly. So he can keep the front tyre temperatures up there. But you want to start the lap with the tyre pressure as low as possible. And then by the end of the lap, you hope they're still low enough to give you some grip. And then it's taken that into a you know twenty lap stint or something. Then it's the big problem because if you if you can do that with your tires, then that's one thing. But if you um, go into twenty laps, you can't slow down one lap and just let the tires cool down again. So I think they they found the problem was the balance between that one quick lap and qualifying to the durability of the rear tire during the race, and and it was a big compromise for them. But even then, you know, with the downforce that those front two front cars are creating. The lateral forces, you know, the energy in the tyre with the downforce and the, the grip level they have is huge. And that, you know, that moves the structure of the tyre around. So that increases temperatures as well. So 
it's, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of situations. You don't want the tire to slip and slide, but also putting that load into it heats the tire up. So it's a compromise between that one lap qualifying and the and the race stint. And I think although Mercedes looked to have more problems than Ferrari with it, they still won the championship and they still won more races and they still got the best out of it. So there's a balance in that between the two. And Jake, one of the controversial topics this season was the Mercedes wheel rims, which you're something of a YouTube sensation about. I think they first appeared at Spa and they came and went a little bit over the course of the season. Can you just explain what these were and perhaps we can try and work out whether there's any real significance in them? Obviously, bearing in mind this is not a visual medium, so uh, your descriptive powers may be challenged. Well, it, they turned up in Spa with these very innovative-looking uh, rims, uh, a lot of raised sections on the outer face, and it just seemed to be attempting to pull a little bit of heat out of it, change the distribution of temperature across the entirety of the wheel and just as Gary says, just help with managing uh, uh, temperatures and pressures a little bit. And then they turned up in, I think it was Singapore, with a development of that where they'd essentially blanked out the center of the rim, um, try and pull a little bit of airflow through it, um, and again, try and manage that temperature again. Uh, Obviously, we have a very wonderful YouTube video showing the capabilities of that off. Um, But yeah, it's it seemed to work, and then but it was very very controversial. Ferrari considered it a movable aerodynamic device. They intended to protest it. Merce- uh, Mercedes took it off for Austin and uh, Mexico as well. Um, well, Mercedes kind of protested themselves in Mexico, almost not really, but they went to the stewards and said, "Well, can we have a ruling on this?" And the steward said, "This version of it, this as presented, is okay." Absolutely, and but they still decided that they weren't going to run it just in case Ferrari decided to protest. And yeah, it was interesting to see what they were doing with that. Um, obviously, I'd love to know more. Uh, I think we've only scratched the surface of it, really. I think there's much more that Mercedes are keeping to themselves and it'll be interesting to see whether it also makes an appearance next season as well. What do you make of those, Gary? Do you think that, I mean, there's, there is concerns that that sort of approach can lead to things getting a bit ridiculous down the line. Yeah, it's a very fine line between movable aerodynamic device and moving aerodynamic device. And, you know, I, I consider that anything you're doing with that, it's, it's not movable, it's moving. Like a wheel, I mean, it's an aerodynamic device, it's got spokes in it, it works a bit like a fan. Um, it's a moving aerodynamic device. Well, if you ask the FIA, they'll always come back to this primary purpose catch-all that if, if the primary purpose of the rotating wheel is to be a wheel and for the car to hang off, for want of a better word, then, then you're okay. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, uh, it is a fine line between how you interpret bits and pieces on a, on, a, on, a, um, on a racing car. For example, you know, the brake disc has got all those holes through it and the primary purpose of that is the primary purpose of the brake disc is to, to act as a brake. Does it need those holes in it to function correctly? Yes, it does need those holes in it to function correctly, otherwise it gets too hot. But its primary purpose is there is it's a slab of metal. If you go back in time to brake discs first being invented, it was a solid brake disc, you know, steel brake disc. And then, so we've got this situation now where um, Mercedes have put some holes through between the axle as such and the, and the wheel to try and move some air through there to allow... Basically, the, the temperature from the brakes not to go through the axle into the wheel and you know make this mass of heat, mass uh, absorb the heat. Um, but I, I personally believe that it's you know they're there, they're a fixed geometry. You're not changing it. Um, you know when is a, a lightning hole not not a function? If we put more more holes in the wheel for for um, 
the drive studs of the whale just because it takes some weight out of the whale, but you can have them. Is that it's not? It doesn't need it to be a whale, but it, it takes weight out of the whale, and you can put the drive pegs into various different holes. You know, so I don't know. I, my book is that uh, a, a fixed geometry should be allowed in anything you're doing, um, but if it's a variable geometry, you know, that's that's movable then, and, and that's not allowed. So I think that the Mercedes solutions a good solution for keeping the temperature out of the wheel over the race duration, which is what it's for, really. Try and move some air through there so that the, the mass build-up of temperature in the rim and the, and the brake hub, or the hub and the brake disc, and that doesn't influence the tyre pressures. Um, so I would be all for it. I think it's great stuff. And looking at the comparison of Ferrari versus Mercedes, what, what do we think are the main differences in terms of their approach? Obviously, Ferrari came with a car that had a little bit more rake this year. Mercedes is fractionally increased but it's definitely not among the high rake cars that's perhaps exemplified by by red bull there's a few different approaches on bits and pieces of the car that have actually given quite quite a similar approach what stands out to you gary well i think one of the things that ferrari did this year was was from last year was to go for the longer wheelbase car uh, a bit more of a mercedes direction and you know they had some benefits last year in the in the slow speed tracks singapore monaco hungary and that they were for sure, they were a better car than the Mercedes in, in those tracks last year, and they threw that away this year. We're going with a with a longer wheelbase. And well, yeah, you know the the big thing with the high rake and Red Bull with the ones to instigate it was is basically to get the front wing lower, um, more rake on the car um, in the low speed and medium speed corners because these cars potentially the understeer in the the lower speed corners, but then you want the the downforce centre pressure of the car to move rearwards at high speed so the car's more comfortable. A little bit of understeer at high speed doesn't do any harm. It just gives you the confidence, you know, you know what the car's doing. So the high rake um, solution gives you that because otherwise you're doing it with um, stalling front wings or, um, you know, just aerodynamic characteristics of the car as it changes the ride height. And the, the high rake then should give you more downforce in the low speed corners, which is where you want it because obviously that's the minimum, minimum speed. It means you've got the minimum downforce in the car. So it's a very complicated package to get working. And I don't think Mercedes have gone that route mainly because they know how to handle what they've got with what they've got. Ferrari felt they had to sort of try to exploit something else. And, you know, there was a while, I think, where Ferrari, they had the high rake, but they hadn't got it working for themselves correctly. Um, it took a bit of time for them to get on top of it. And I think it showed also during the, the season when they changed the floor, it cost them quite a lot. And, um, you know, anything you're doing around that floor area, around the sides of the floor area and making it seal um, was the the vortexes that's generated from the front wing end plates and the end of the bars board will all influence the underfloor dramatically. So small changes on a high-rate car can have a much, much bigger influence than small changes on a lower-rate car like Mercedes. And certainly I think it's true what you say about Ferrari. had quite a lot of weekends where they were struggling a bit this year, but there was a lot of big steps taken from Friday to Saturday that for the first half of the season they generally take a bigger step than anyone and there was a lot of work being done in the simulator I think Canada where they had a real struggle on Friday and Vettel went on to win I think he described it as a miracle to turn around from, from Friday so we did see that from Ferrari well Jake you've just been sifting through Giorgio Piolo our technical illustrator's uh, drawings of the season anything strike you about the Mercedes and Ferrari approaches? Uh, I think Mercedes have built their season on the philosophy of marginal gains. Um, they had a couple of big upgrades at two points in the season, but it's been a very, very gradual progression to get their car where they want it to be. And Ferrari have been different. They had a quicker car out of the box, um, but then it got to a point in the season where they were bringing upgrades. It was around Singapore, that kind of time. And 
things just weren't working for them. They produced these uh, McLaren-style rear-wing end plates, um, trying to sort the balance out of the back a little bit. And it just, it didn't seem to be working for them. And they got to around Sochi time where they had to dial back on about three or four different upgrades. They brought a new front wing and various other bits and pieces, but Ferrari have sort of run around flitting between different kind of upgrade strategies and that kind of thing. Mercedes, as I say, have this gradual progression where the small upgrades, they've made sure that they work and they've continued on that form. Ferrari have gone backwards and forwards and said, okay, this hasn't worked, let's go back. And then going down different roads. It's, yeah, it's been a little bit of a strange season for them. Um, I think, you know, maybe they need to be a little bit more self-reflective um, when it comes to developing these upgrades. Uh, they don't, Ferrari doesn't seem to currently possess that capacity. It's usually, blame is usually pinned on somebody or Italian media gets wind of it and isn't entirely happy about it. Um, I think Ferrari sort of needs to get the house in order a little bit more if they're going to consistently challenge, if they're going to win a title even. It's been an interesting thing this year. That I think what's been really impressive about Mercedes is they, all through the season, they've had faith in kind of their processes and it's like, well, we'll keep working, keep working. But Gary, when it comes to upgrades and things, you can't kind of rush it, can you? I get the feeling that Ferrari were kind of thinking they had to try really hard it's like, well, either something's ready and you understand it and it should go on the car or it's not. And I think that's perhaps Mercedes controlling themselves and Ferrari just being a bit too aggressive has, has probably made the big difference. Well, yeah, it is. You you have to make sure you research it correctly. I mean, the, the limitation in, in wind tunnel time now for the teams um, that's instigated by the FIA and CFD time means that sometimes you can, you can shortcut something a little bit but end up paying the price ultimately at the track. It's better to spend more time researching and making sure you understand it 100%. And that's where I think also Mercedes won out, really, because Ferrari dropped off. They, they didn't keep putting the pressure on Mercedes. You know, they did drop off themselves. Well, they, they dropped back towards yeah. Red Bull, didn't they? Yeah, they dropped that back, and, and, and that meant that, that Mercedes could relax that a little bit more and just, just get on with it. So it's very, very difficult to... Anything that's near the ground, the underfloor, um, the front wing assemblies, the front wing end plates, anything in the bars board area, any of that stuff that's near the ground, you really need to have a good understanding how your car works and how it correlates with the track because it's all influenced by the, by the track surface. And if you look, you know, we talk about developments and developments and developments. Last year's uh, Abu Dhabi, last year's pole position, um, this year's pole position, this year was 1.5 seconds faster. It was one tyre compound softer than last year as well. Tyres have changed a little bit more than that. but They are softer as a range as yeah. well, so maybe so that's a couple of steps softer. Maybe, maybe it's a couple of steps, but at most that would be, you know, three-quarters of a second, let's say half a second, three-quarters of a second. So the cars over a season, and Abu Dhabi is a pretty good example because other than turn 20, we put the kerb in, it was more or less the same track, but whether it's more or less the same, all that stuff stays probably fairly consistent during the year. So the cars development from year on year is about one second or maybe even a little bit less than that so all this, these developments that we're talking about all these new floors and wing plates and front wings and you know a whole year development has found you know seven seven eight tenths of a second which is really a very small amount of time for the investment involved in it but if you get it slightly wrong by that little bit you can lose that much very very quickly and i think ferrari did that on a couple of occasions had to regroup a bit. And because of that, they took the pressure off Mercedes and let Mercedes have that uh, ease of thinking a bit more positively and, and making sure they weren't you know, um, making mistakes. 
What we haven't really talked about yet is the the engine war between Ferrari and Mercedes, which which raged through the year. Uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding what Ferrari was or wasn't doing, as uh, some people are suggesting. We did we did see throughout the season, f- for the most part, a trend whereby Ferrari was gaining time on Mercedes in the straights, and then Mercedes was often gain it back in the corners this, if you sort of split down the qualifying laps over the year this happened surprisingly often and both t- both teams had a couple of chunky engine upgrades during the year Ferrari the works team took theirs in Canada and then Spa and Mercedes delayed it for a race and they had it at Paul, uh, Paul Ricard for the French Grand Prix and then and then Spa who kind of came out on top of this because we're used to Mercedes having the advantage in the V6 hybrid era but Ferrari's come on really really strong yeah, I mean the Ferrari. I think the two of them now you could you could flick a coin. Um, some of them probably slightly different characteristics and how they, they both operate. But in general, the overall picture of it is that both engines now are, are as strong as each other for, for sure. Through the 14, 15, 16 seasons, um, the Mercedes had the the dominant power unit, but Ferrari have really worked quite hard in that area. And you know, to the extent that even some people were questioning what they were doing, and this twin battery thing came up and all sorts of stuff. We should say the FIA has looked into it and they were very, very happy. There were stories about two sensors going on which coincided with Ferrari stepping back, but actually those sensors have been on since Monaco, so that correlation wasn't wasn't really there. No, I, I don't think, I said you know, many times, I don't think Ferrari would do anything um, outside of the regulations in that area because it's, it's just too big a thing to do. Um, you could do something because you, made, you didn't have the same understanding because you know that's what happens, that's what grey areas are all about. But at the end of the day, the FIA did police it and they come up and said, yeah, no, it's all okay, so no, no, no dramas. So we had to look, you know, there is differences in cars um, as far as straight line speed's concerned, coming off the corner, acceleration, how you use it, the, uh, the energy recovery system, do you use it at the beginning of the street, do you use it halfway down the street, do you use it a bit everywhere. You know, there's so much you can do differently now that I think you have to accept the fact that there will be cars that were that will perform differently around the lap and, and make, make up the same lap time at the end of the day. But um, I think, which is a good thing, I think that Ferrari and Mercedes power units now are, you know, more or less equal with each other. So it's, it's become now a bit more of a driver and a chassis um, race as opposed to a power, power unit race. And certainly, Joe, we saw perhaps the biggest steps the teams did make were generally when those power units came in. So there's always this argument people say, people used to say before the engines changed, oh, it's all aero. And now sometimes people say there's too much engine or there's too much error. It seems to be reasonably well balanced, actually, at the moment. Well, I think we're slowly reaching a point of convergence, which is quite nice, considering at the start of this turbo era, there was such a gulf between the uh, then three different uh, power unit suppliers. It was amazing right at the start, just to to interject. I remember, Gary, when we were in Harath for the first group test, and Mercedes could basically get their car running everyone else remember the first like hour of the test we all just stood basically in the fast lane in the pit lane of, of a live circuit just just chatting because it, it was it was just <laughs> it was just really the fight to actually start it up and drive out the garage was was incredible you know and, the, and mercedes, mercedes was way ahead of the yeah, curve mercedes could just do it whereas the, the renault for example you know the garage door would open the car would be fired up and then it would stop and they'd shut the garage door and then 15 minutes later, we'd do the same thing again. And that was they constant. Didn't, they didn't manage a single practice start pre-season in 14, a Renault engine car, which is no, it's, uh, it's amazing. But it was amazing, but it's changed quite dramatically now. And obviously, you know, it looks as though Renault are still, you know, dragging their heels a little bit, to be honest. And to be honest, you know, now it's, what, five years? We're in the fifth year of it. Um, 
in 2019, it, it's time they got on top of it because it's, it's too long. You know, if, yeah, you can make a bit of a mistake with your initial package and get it wrong, and but it, that shouldn't keep happening over uh, over this period of time. So it's Renault's turn now to catch up, but I think, as I say, Mercedes and Ferrari are pretty equal. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, Ferrari's progress shows we can do it. I mean, I interrupted you a minute ago, Jake, so I'll let you sort of pick up again, what you're saying about the versions. But it, it does seem that, yeah, in terms of the... Ferrari Mercedes kind of engine development almost match they can almost cancel themselves out over the season yeah definitely it was as Gary said it was quite tit for tat in many respects um, Mercedes would produce something Ferrari would produce something it's sort of a bit of a boxing match between the two and it's great to see it's great to have it um, especially as I mentioned before there was just all of this massive gulf between the engine suppliers and especially 2014, if you had a Mercedes, you were on top. Now, and I hope this will be the case in a couple of years, that it doesn't really matter which supplier you have, you'll still have a fighting chance. So it's good to see. Um, we also know that with the Ferrari upgrades, you know, that brought Haas back into play. Sometimes Sauber as well took the advantage. And then when Mercedes brought stuff, um, you know, we had their teams getting into it a little bit more. So... Yeah, it's it's obviously great to have it, and hopefully the convergence. Hopefully, we'll have uh, Renault and Honda get into the mix pretty soon. Well, we mentioned Renault a little bit there, Gary. Let's have a look at Red Bull, third fastest team on average over the season. Now, the kind of feeling is that the claim is at Red Bull that power unit normalised, should we say, they've got the best car. Would you agree with that? Um, they've definitely got a good car. I think it's always difficult to say we've got the best car because um, there are compromises with putting a different engine in it now, yeah, if you go back I've, I've never seen any examples of a team saying they've got a really good car if they had the engine changed and then not being bought out no well there's <laughs> one and we'll probably come on to it later on but near the end of the list here um, but you know if you take if you take Red Bull an example um, you know if you go back in the uh, engines to be pre-2014 when they used the Renault engine the normally aspirated engine against Mercedes normally aspirated and Ferrari normally aspirated you know, an engine is made up of more than one thing. And that Renault engine back in that time when Red Bull dominated for four seasons, it didn't have the power of the Mercedes or the Ferrari, but it needed less cooling. So they were able to optimise their car aerodynamically um, to get more downforce out of it, get more grip out of it, but they gave up a little bit of horsepower and they were happy with that. The car was never, you know, quick in a straight line, but it was very, very good as far as, you know, downforce and balance and whatever was concerned. Um, and the same still exists, to be honest. There's so much cooling required for these engines nowadays, with the battery packs and the, you know, the um, intercooler charging and the engine cooling oil and water and stuff. So there's so much of that required that it's just that there's a little difference everywhere basically, and it's not just one thing about horsepower. Renault, yes, I'm, I am sure they're not as strong as Mercedes or Ferrari by any means, um, but if you put in that extra maybe 20, 30 horsepower that they're missing it will bring compromises to the car as well because you don't get 20 or 30 horsepower without increasing the cooling somewhere. So that's going to be a deficit. So there's always a negative for every positive as well. So you need to be very careful with how you're, how you're doing it. I don't think you just take a Mercedes, stick it in a Red Bull, and you go and blitz everybody. I don't think that's really the, the, the case because you will have to make other compromises. One thing that did stand out with the Red Bull uh, watching trackside throughout the season is it was a pretty well-balanced car. Uh, that normally speaks quite well of, of the quality of a car, doesn't it, when you put it on track and it works fairly well. The Ferrari was normally pretty good, but the the Red Bull was very strong in this area. And the fact it was pretty good on tyres throughout the whole season, probably the best of the, of the big three, probably the best of any car in the field, actually, suggests to me that that 
that was a good car that was working, that was consistent, that was doing what they wanted it to do. I think you, you just said the right thing there. It was a well-balanced car. And if you've got a well-balanced car, it will be good in tires. It's, it's the unbalanced cars that eat the tires up, really. So, you know, if you've got a car that's good, in the, as I was talking about, the low speed and the medium speed and the high speed and has the right characteristics, aerodynamic characteristics, to keep the balance of the car through that range, just basically not understeer like a pig. Because when you've got a car understeer in the low speed corners, then you're going to try to accelerate off the corner. Your, your corner speed is, is reduced. You're going to accelerate more, so you're going to hurt the rear tires more. Um, but if you've got cars nicely balanced and you can keep the corner speed there, then you know you have less acceleration coming off the corner because you're accelerating from a higher speed, but you've also got less brutal acceleration. But also Red Bull was very good at, cl- at, at curbs. You know, they ride over the curbs better than I think probably any other car in, in the pit lane. If you looked at uh, Mexico, it was a good example of it, that last little section, that little S section coming onto the, onto the pit straight. They were able to use that curb. It didn't upset the car. The car landed, gripped, and accelerated. And, you know, onto that straight, that makes a big a big difference. If you can get that minimum corner speed up onto the straight. Um, and they're, they're good at all that sort of stuff. And, you know, as I say, I think they do have a good handle on the aerodynamic package. But if you put a different engine in it with a bit more bit more power, as I say, and it needs a bit more cooling, then maybe they lose a bit of that downforce. Uh, because you can't, airflow using to cool the car is wasted for is making downforce out of it. Um, so... Yes, they have a good chassis. Yes, they have a very well balanced chassis. Yes, it looked after the tires for the conditions that they're you know they're operating in with the power unit they have. Obviously, we've talked about the, the Renault engine performance, Jake. Now, one thing that stood out is Red Bull had a lot of reliability problems. Certainly, more reliability problems than the other Renault engine cars had. Constant war of words going on between Red Bull and uh, and and Renault. So, what, what's the kind of reality there? Because there'll be those around Renault will say, "Well, it's Red Bull. They've caused problems by." running the engine too aggressively or whatever. And certainly when there was an aggressive choice to be made, such as taking the, the third spec engine, Red Bull did do it while the other teams didn't. And then they eventually cycled back. So who, who's kind of telling the truth here? Uh, I'm inclined to believe it's more of how Red Bull operates the engine. We know that with their design direction, they are pushing everything to the limit. And with regards to the Renault engine, how they use it, they're pushing their cooling to the absolute limit, not in the same way that Renault do, because Renault are a team that's growing. They don't need to push quite so hard as Red Bull, who are trying to claw back the advantage to Mercedes and Ferrari. So I think it's a way that they use it. Um, they've not been particularly great at taking Renault's advice when you know there were different specifications available. Red Bull said, well, we'll take this one, even if Red Bull, uh, Renault rather had said, maybe this isn't good for Mexico with higher altitudes and such. Red Bull have just gone, we'll do it anyway. And net result, we see Daniel Ricciardo more often than not parked alongside the road, uh, probably watching more of the Grand Prix than he's taken part in. And it's a bit difficult to see. Uh, It's not great. Um, Red Bull do throw Renault under the bus quite a lot. Um, And next year with Honda Power, they're going to have absolutely nowhere to hide on this. So... um, yeah, I think, I don't know. It's it's a strange situation. They've never seemed to got to, to get on uh, in a working uh, way conducive to good work. So I, I, I don't know what to believe at this point, but I think I'm more inclined to believe that Red Bull are just maybe pushing it a little bit too hard. But certainly we saw, Gary, I think Red Bull in terms of the, the aero side, they do seem to have a good command and good understanding of it still. I think we can be fairly sure of that, that if the Honda engine takes a step next year, 
I mean, they're confident the Honda engine will certainly be not not be a step back against whether they still think they'd have won those races this year with that. So we can be reasonably confident that Red Bull's still got that quality or is there that danger that they'll miss things and they'll make that mistake of blaming the engine for everything and miss a few things because there were retirements that were down to the Milton Keynes side of the operation not Renault well there always is I mean it's a, it's a balancing act and I agree with Jake here that uh, Red Bull are pretty good at throwing Renault under the bus and even going back to to pre the hybrid engine you know they had the alternator problems with the Renault thing and uh, some of them were um, Red Bull instigated. Yes, it was a, a Renault alternator that failed at the end of the day, but the cooling required for that, and you know, they didn't. They compromised it basically. So it's a balance in that between making sure your car can um, finish races as opposed to doing everything to win races. Now, Red Bull won the championship four four seasons in a trot. They want to get back there, and they know that you have to push things to the limit to achieve that, and you will always fix the reliability issues but you have to push it to the limit um, to try to get on top of everything. Going in with Honda, it's going to be a slightly different deal. I mean, I don't think that Honda will will accept the uh, the same sort of um, battering that they might get from, from Red Bull. So Honda look as though they're you know, in the same sort of league as Renault at the moment uh, on face value. They've only got one team there, Toro Rosso, which has always been a bit up and down to make a sort of judgment on. But it looks as though they've got uh, an engine knocking on the door of Renault and they should make a bit of a step for next year because of the motivation to go to, to Red Bull but um, Red Bull they need to be you know they need to be kind they need to be brave um, they need to not exploit things too far really just give up, give Honda the opportunity to make sure that the, the, um, that the engine can function at its best at the track but Red Bull have a habit of pushing pushing things to the extreme as Jake says and you know so they won't be given you know there won't be room in there in this cooling for everything by that extra maybe five percent that would be quite good for honda they'll, they'll definitely be pushing the limit to try to win races and hopefully it will work and hopefully honda will make a step up to mercedes and ferrari and we'll have a a real humdinger of a battle between three teams instead of two teams but uh, i think it might take a year before that really happens yeah i can see red bull honda being in a position to pick off some race wins here and there but maybe not challenge for the championship although we can we can but hope well let's move into the midfield now uh, now actually while we've Got in constructors championship order so far we're actually going in terms of average performance order and this is where we get the first divergence from that with Haas having on average the fourth fastest car over the season finishing fifth in the championship I mean it's a strong season for Haas ultimately wasn't it Gary we've seen them be very up and down the first couple of years understandably they still didn't get the absolute best out of the car because if they had they'd have been fourth in the championship but a big step forward for the team which seems to have lent on what it's allowed to take from Ferrari very, very effectively. Some criticism, but all completely legal and above board. They're doing it the way the rules allow. Yes, I mean, it's a very good step for them because, you know, they're relatively, they're still the new team in the block as such. Um, they've obviously stabilised a reasonable amount now and they've, you know, they've, they've got a, a positive direction. Whenever we saw the car at the start of the season, uh, pre-season testing, we all sort of questioned the fact that it was looked a bit more like a an updated version of, of last year's car than a what you call a new car. But I think they, they consciously did that. They just didn't want to lose themselves. And they thought, right, okay, let's let's take the best we can out of this car and uh, put it all together in, uh, you know, in the 2017 car and put it into the 2018 car and then develop it from there. And it worked for them pretty well because, you know, they were, there were occasions when they were right up there uh, knocking on the door. You know, they were the... the, the the fourth best team, I suppose you might call it, on quite a few occasions, probably still have to try to make it more consistent because they threw away a few as well. So if they can get rid of those low points and keep the high points, 
then I think they'll they'll step forward again. But they, you know, for a team what three years into the into their existence, um, they've done a you know, they've done a solid job. Has seemed to have a car that was it's pretty well balanced. It seemed to work quite well on some of the the slightly quicker tracks like Austria. It went very well out, for example, sort of medium to fast speed corners. That was a bit of a bit of a battle with understeer in the in the lower speed corners. But what do you make of what you saw, Jake? And you've been cycling through Giorgio Piola's drawn plenty of things of the Haas this year. That their development was a little bit delayed early in the season because they they were a little bit too aggressive in the the, the layout of some of the parts and the car had a bit of a habit of shaking itself to pieces and you've got bits of bargeboard falling off uh, for, for no reason other than just the, the, the standard loads being being put through them. But we did see a few little interesting steps them through the year. Canada was the first sort of really big upgrade they brought in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the upgrade path has been still again from Haas. It's, they'll start off the season very, very well and then um, it gets to a crunch point in the middle of the season where they look at next year's car and then the upgrades just sort of stop um you know we saw a couple of new nice new rear wings and changing floor geometry bargeboard geometry that kind of thing it's sort of the standard upgrade pattern where they're just taking what they have and making incremental steps until you know because obviously if you don't upgrade your car then you're just simply going to go backwards um but yeah, it's just been a very sort of standard trajectory from Haas. They've had a couple of seasons to learn what they need to do. Um, they use as many non-listed parts from Ferrari as they can get away with. So suspension, geometry, gearbox, that kind of thing. Um, so they've got a little bit more of a free hand to pursue gains in other areas um, with a little bit of assistance from Delara as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they ever break away from that. Uh, it seems to be a pretty good model for starting up a new team, but I think at some point you're going to have to stand on your own two feet and whether they persist with their current model or whether they move away from it, uh, only time will tell. And Gary, just finally on house, would you... If you're running Haas, would you give yourself a free pass for the fact that it's the third year and fifth is pretty good? Or would you be thinking, actually, we should have been fourth? Because you know the drivers did throw away a number of points over the season, Roman Grosjean, early on in particular. The team had a few weekends where it didn't do things perfectly. The Australia was the great example where they'd have had sort of one-two in the midfield battle, but pit stop problems put both cars out, although they hadn't solved those. So what, what would your kind of feeling be if, if you were technical director there well you've got to keep tidying it up you've got to make sure that you can do it consistently and as you say the the the, the wheel changing uh, process in australia threw away a lot of points their floor infringement at monza i think it was um points lost again but uh, taking just just taking performance and forgetting the fact that you know there's, there's mistakes in the race and that, that's where the points count it's, it's performance if you can get your performance to be fairly stable then I think you start to understand understand the car better. If it goes up and down like a bit of a yo-yo, then you, you tend to question yourself as to what your understanding of the car is because you're not getting the best out of it. You're not setting up correctly to suit the car you've got. So if I was technical director there, I'd be saying, look, let's try to analyse why we've had a variation, why we were very, very good in Austria, why we were very, very bad at X, wherever that was. Mexico was probably Me- the, uh, yeah, Mexico. The, the, the worst, the worst um, performance. So you need, you need to sort of try and level out a bit because then you, you, know, you get yourself a set of problems that are identifiable and fixable and you can, you can take your development in that direction. So you have to stabilise before you can really sort of step forward. Um, sometimes it's actually better to not put developments on the car for a while and just get the best out of it because you know every time you change the car, you change its characteristics and then setup-wise it might be a little bit different so you can you can be chasing your tail forever. And that's what happened to Ferrari in the middle of the season. They put developments on the car that didn't make sense. 
they didn't quite get on top of it because they were you know, chasing their tail trying to catch up with a problem that was self-created. And if you keep on putting developments on the car, you can end up like that. So sometimes you have to step back a little bit, give yourself two or three races to really make sure you've got the best out of it. The, consi- the problems the car's got are consistent and you can identify them, as I say, and, and instigate development directions to fix them. Well, moving on to the team that did take fourth in the championship, that's fifth on the overall performance ranking, is is Renault. Now, Gary, Renault set themselves an objective this season of finishing fourth in the championship. They did that, so it's a success from that perspective. But they didn't close on the front anywhere near as much as they hoped to. And they ended up spending the season in that midfield battle, dicing with, with much smaller teams. So it's kind of the same question. with Are you... Would you be pleased with what Renault had done? Disappointed? What's what's the the story there? Because they've they've added a lot of facilities and people to that team in recent times. Um, I wouldn't be pleased for the same reasons uh, as with the Haas thing. They were, they were just too inconsistent. They had a really bad period, sort of like three quarters of the way through the season, where they just dropped off basically in performance. They were finishing, but they weren't really performing very well as far as you know lap time was concerned. Um, yeah, really, the, from the break all the way through up to including Austin they were they were struggling yes and as I say that that's the sort of lull that you've got to try and work out why that happened because you can't let that happen uh, and and challenge for a position in the championship you've got to make sure you're scoring at maximum all the time obviously they again like like Haas they've lost points you know dr- dramatically lost points um, but their actual performance as I say is a big thing for me it was, it was a bit too inconsistent Um They've added a lot of people, and that you know, as that happens, it's very hard to manage everybody. They're all coming in, and they're all got good ideas, and they're all very clever, and they're all in everything. But making it all work as one, which is what like Mercedes seem to do very, very well, probably do better than anybody, to be honest. Mercedes at that, that is the biggest challenge of getting everybody to work and making sure the egos are satisfied, uh, not not diluted, but satisfied, so that everybody gets their chance to for their input, and and uh, you know package the car to suit everybody's needs because you've got to get everybody pulling in the same direction and I think that'll be hard for Renault to do but they're on their way you know if they have the deficit in the power unit that we see with Red Bull then that, that's there as well for them um, but you know they've, they've got to do better I think because they are you know, they are a works team they are going to get measured against Mercedes and Ferrari who are in theory a works team and obviously Red Bull even though it's a drink supplier, it's a works team in reality, with the Honda engine pack is coming next year. So Renault are going to get measured against that. So they have to stand up and be counted pretty soon. And Jake, I mean, Renault, it's not a team that there's nothing kind of on the car that appeared in the season that made me go, wow, that's amazing. There's nothing leaping to mind. Having sorted through what you've seen, is there anything that interests that, that really has caught your attention through going through Giorgio's illustrations? Um, to be honest, I think we've hit the most two difficult ones now, Haas and Renault, I think, are the ones that we've got the least drawings of uh, in our little uh, archive, I guess. Which says something in itself. It's not because he hasn't drawn them, it's because there's nothing to draw. Absolutely. I mean, Renault turned up with quite an interesting looking front wing. It's got a a very sort of truncated area in the, the, towards the center section of the wing. It's got a little V section there uh, as well. And it's sort of quite an interesting design, but, generally they've not brought a lot of things and it just it seems to be again this just progression of getting the team back to where it should be uh kind of discounting almost what's going on on the track because at the moment they know that they're not a top team uh this year it's been their first full season with two you know drivers that can score points pretty much most weekends um and yeah they're just building up to it and 
trying to integrate all of this mass of new people coming into the team. Um, I think at some point it will work out for them. It's just whether that's a question of if, if it's next season or, or whether they still are lacking a little bit of resource. Let's move on to your old team now, Gary, Force India. Of course, uh, your founding technical director of the team is Jordan. A slightly different story for, for this team. Sixth fastest on our performance index. They finished seventh in the championship because basically it's re-emerged as a new team racing point force India mid-season having lost all their points and I think we can say that if they'd actually had the, the cash to manufacture the parts they, they'd researched and developed in the first part of the year it's pretty likely they'd have been fourth overall um, but they weren't very far off if you had the, the two versions of the team points they're only I think 11 points off Renault anyway so it's, it's difficult to judge force India without taking that whole wider context in, into account isn't it? Yeah, I think you have to do that because obviously they, they went through their problems and, you know, whenever the problem, you know, was made public, it probably been internally a problem for a long time. So it's not only the times that we've seen it cause them grief of not being able to bring stuff to the car. Um, it, it was happening before that. And, and one of the things that I think Andrew Green is very good at um, is, as you yourself say, making sure things, you know, as best possible is, is researched as much as it can be before it actually gets to the track. And 99.9% of the time they, they work. So that would hurt them more than some other team that's firing bits and pieces at the, at the car, uh, week in, week out because, you know, they, they plan, they plan in the longer term and then suddenly the longer term wasn't there. They started the season pretty poorly again for the, for the same reason that they felt they needed to get the car up and running and the pre-season tests, get the mechanical side of it sorted out, get an understanding of the car and then bring the developments to the first races. Um, they didn't quite make that for the first race. And then probably just even because of the same reasons, because funds were just that, that bit limited. And there are a few bits in the car that weren't working with the side pods weren't quite working as, yeah. as well. Diffuser there. That it's kind of a, a perfect storm of, of trouble there in that they sort of parts been special as it were they started the season with and even then it wasn't quite yeah. quite working so it wasn't even a solid workable car no it wasn't a solid workable car and it took time to sort of get on top of it but they, you know they did that and they did it quite well and, and quite quickly um and, and to be honest if you look through it from from race two to to the last race of the season and our four block averages i mean they're they're one of the most consistent teams as far as performance is concerned um so that to me is is quite good they've had you know, again, the little battles between the teammates and threw away a few points here and there. Um, but in, in general, I think the stability of the new owners will, will help them a lot because they are a team that I believe work well with stability, with being able to plan stuff because they've never had a, enough money to just, you know, just keep on doing it, just throwing stuff at the car and hoping it works. They, they will plan it and they, I think that mentality won't change just because they've got a bit more money in the bank now. Um, so I think that'll be a strong, a strong package for the future because now they'll be able to plan and stuff will come on schedule um, as opposed to before planning and then suddenly the, the, the bank not paying the bills. We should say actually Force India, of course, was the only team outside the top three to have got a podium this year with Sergio Perez, of course, who else, uh, in Baku with a, with a great performance. But Jake, one thing that stood out about the team this year is even when they were going through that problem when they couldn't build parts, they were doing the research and development cycles, but they couldn't make the new bits they went to the mid-season post-hungry test with a, a 2019 spec test wing one of only two teams along with Williams which is pretty remarkable that, that that's one of the only teams to have to have done that does that say a, a lot about the, the priorities that the team has that rather than getting drawn into either spending some money just to make a front wing upgrade they put on immediately they could still play the long game even when the team was 
in administration at that stage. Certainly. Uh, I think they knew with you know their various cash flow issues across the year that they weren't going to be able to challenge uh, as much as they would have liked to. Even though the car was fundamentally very, very good and by the end of the season, you know, it, it, Perez and Ocon were scoring points on a regular basis. But it was very, very surprising to see that there were so few teams trialling these 2019 parts and Force India, even though they were hamstrung by financial issues, they, I think they were doing absolutely the right thing in trying something out because, you know, that when when else would they do it? Uh, give something like that a proper on-track test and them and Williams, the only teams to do so. Um, yeah, it does suggest they're playing the long game a little bit because, as I say, they knew they couldn't challenge with financial issues. I think they were very, very stretched for resources when it came to putting the part on the car and getting it ready. And I don't think it's going to be too far off what we're going to end up seeing next year. So it was a, you know, presumably it was quite a good test for that first time they'd ever had to try the 2019 rules in anger. And yeah, we'll see if they've managed to pick up something from it for next year. Yeah, would you be fairly happy in their position having actually learned a bit from from running the running the car because we should add that although there was a post-season Abu Dhabi test teams that's a tyre test so teams had to run in their race weekends back there so that they, they couldn't do that well it was the right time to do it you know it was a, a time early enough in the sort of thought pattern of the new car to actually influence it whereas if you take Ferrari running it in Abu Dhabi on Friday morning it's, it's quite late in the season you, you, you've got to be you know, we always used to use a six-month cycle. July the 1st, you need to be fired in with the direction of your new car and your guys all working in the in, in that in that direction, basically. So you've got your your sort of concept in your mind and you've got everybody heading that way. Um, and then that gives you six months to sort of put that all together and have it built and then start pre-season testing in the beginning of the new year. Um, Ferrari taking a sort of fairly basic front wing assembly to Abu Dhabi for the Friday is, is quite late in the day for that, if it's going to influence anything. And even that, that's kind of a cut and shut 18 wing rather than a, yeah. a, a more pucker 19 style wing. No, no, I agree. It's a, more of a cut and shut thing, but it's, you know, the, the time of doing it really, they should have their sort of initial concepts in the wind tunnel and CFD um, mechanical design going around it basically at this point in time so it's quite late to influence anything whereas with with uh, Force India and Williams having that little run in, in Hungary and an aggressive enough run to sort of know you know really what well, get a fair understanding of it um, was vitally important and as I said for Force India as a like I said it's a long-term planning team and that's part of the long-term plan as Jake says you know try to get a good understanding and put the developments in place and have time to research them correctly as opposed to, you know, let's just fire stuff at the car and see what happens. Well, let's move on to the seventh fastest team of the season, which was Sauber. Of course, that's one place better than they finished in the championship. Now, Sauber, they struggled a bit right at the start of the season, Gary, with their, their cooling problems early on. Um, so that, that was a little bit of a, a battle for them. But at the end of the season, I think Charles Leclerc had four seventh places in the last six races they were kind of almost nailed on q3 uh runners to, towards the end of the year certainly the season's most improved team so impressed with them yeah very impressed to be honest you know they started the season poorly i think you might say um and i, I expected to take them quite a lot longer um time to sort of work out the relationship with ferrari work out the relationships with alfa romeo having a budget needing people to do stuff i thought it would you know, take a lot longer but they they definitely got their act together pretty quickly and, you know, as you say, the last few races of the season, they were not only just top 10, it was both drivers were, were knocking on the door and getting in there. If, if they didn't, it was close. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, 
you know, they could be a, a big threat for that fourth place in the championship next year. Kimmy's going there now uh, from Ferrari. And yeah, the one thing we do know about Kimmy Reckman is he just likes driving racing cars fast. So there's nothing nothing else about him. He's not, you know, he's not in there for anything else other than just having a ring in a car's neck on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon. So he will give it his all for sure. Um, and saying that, you know, Charles Leclerc, I think, is very, very good. Again, one of the things I always look at is how people manage the first lap of the race, drivers, because sometimes a driver in a poor car, you know, that's the only time he gets to exploit it, you know, because that's about reactiveness and reaction and reading the situation very well. And um, there's a couple of drivers that I think stand out. Charles Leclerc is one of them, very good at, at, at that first lap. Yes, he's had his incidents, but, you know, um, you're trying to you're trying to step step up your game, I suppose, and that's the opportunity you have because you know once it all settles down, it all settles down. So that's your the time you can influence things. And he's done a good job on, on many occasions, but Sauber as a team definitely have moved forward um, dramatically as this season's gone on. Now, if they can keep that momentum going, as I say with Kimi, then it's going to be a, an interesting season next year for that fourth place in the championship. And Jake, well, the, the previous few teams we talked about haven't had vast amounts of really interesting stuff. The Sauber's quite an unusual car. We saw quite a few interesting little bits turning up through the year. Even the starting car was quite interesting. I know they're Ferrari affiliated, but it's not a, it's not kind of a Haas, is it, in terms of the the, the approach they've taken with it? Definitely not. Um, we saw last year that they turned up for 2017 with a very, very in- innovative uh, airbox, if you like. Um, it was almost like that. It was it 2011 uh, where Force India and Caterham turned up with that sort of split intake and Sauber had come up with something quite similar. Um, and then there was their side pods as well, which were very, very shrunk in, sort of high but narrow, uh, split into two different uh, uh, apertures using the um, side intrusion spar to separate them. So it was a really, really interesting looking car and they'd also borrowed perhaps the uh, nostril design at the front end from from Force India. It was a really interesting car. Um, it was interesting at the start because it didn't seem to be working out for them, but it, it did seem to be fundamentally something quite innovative. And by uh, Paul Ricard, Sauber had turned up with quite a big upgrade package. Uh, they'd come up with a very, very new bargeboard area design uh, along the flanks as well um, they developed their side pod concept a little bit further and that seemed to yield dividends for them uh, out the, at the start of the season they were really struggling to get out of Q1 and then suddenly in France uh, I think Leclerc was quite way up in Q2 and then throughout the season that just seemed to progress and by the end of the season uh, he and Ericsson were making Q3 uh, every other round it seemed so it seemed to be a really good season for them um, what isn't perhaps known is the fact that they were in real dire straits uh, at one point last season. Um, and as soon as Ferrari and Alfa Romeo came in, because uh, Sauber have obviously had that Honda deal that was abortive at the end, the Ferrari deal came in and suddenly that seemed to invigorate them. That gave them a little bit of direction. It really helped them out and helped them climb up the order a little bit. A team transformed and one that's uh, that's looking like a, a good contender to be right at the front of the midfield uh, at the start of next season. Well, that brings us to eighth in our list, Toro Rosso. Gary, now, again, a team that can be a little bit inconsistent, had some great moments, Bahrain and Hungary. Pierre Gasly was able to be best of the rest very, very clearly in those in those races, but other times, struggling. Yeah, and, and I never know why. I mean, it's it's been like that for quite a while with them. And uh, as I keep saying about these teams, you know, con- getting consistency means you understand where you are. 
you can set a development path, you can to fix your problems because it's so easy just to keep blindly developing stuff and creating problems rather than actually identifying where your deficit really is and, and, and going for it. And obviously, it's a year with Honda. It's their first year doing that. But that side of it seemed to work quite well. Yes, there was there was penalties because of longer-term plan, I think, with Honda and Toro Rosso. Toro Rosso knew that this year was, was probably going to suffer those penalties. And as, as the Red Bull part of Toro Rosso, we were happy to accept that because it was good for them for the future. So, um, yeah, they had some strong qualifying p- positions. And as you say, right up there, we, we take those top six positions out of the grid and they were up, you know, heading for the B-class pool in seventh. Um, but not, not consistent enough. That's the biggest problem. As I say, that usually should be down to the team. I mean, the, the engine itself, yes. As I say, points, um, penalties um, created differences in points. But as far as the car's performance itself was concerned, it, it wasn't good. And James Key now moving to McLaren next year sometime. Um, obviously, that's a big loss for them. He's been there for a while. James is a very clever young guy. Um, and it was one of those sort of things where he fitted in the team very, very well. So I was very surprised to see that happening because I thought Red Bull would have tried to have kept him in the family somewhere. And if that meant a, a bigger job, there would have been an opportunity at Milton Keynes for him. But they let him go to, to McLaren. Um, and they don't seem to have sort of done anything with replacing that for the future. I'm not quite sure how they're, they're reacting to the situation, what they're going to do with the future at Toro Rosso, because it's, um, you know, it needs somebody to lead the ship. And uh, James is very, very good at that. But again, as far as the team's concerned, they need to just get their consistency together as far as car performance is concerned. And we should say, Jake, obviously what Toro Rosso has done this season is somewhat rehabilitated the reputation of beleaguered Honda after several years of being beaten up by, by McLaren and they have shown that the Honda engine you know, can be made to be effective in Formula 1. Absolutely. And I don't think there was too much of a doubt over whether Honda would do it. it maybe in 2015 when everything looked lost for them, certainly. But McLaren did have a couple of decent seasons. With Well, 2016 was decent. Um, you know, we obviously know that Honda were disadvantaged by a year or maybe even longer than that because the current engines were being developed way in advance. Um, so yeah, it's good to see. Um, there is still a couple of question marks because, as Gary has said, Toro Rosso took quite a few penalties over the course of the season. Um, they say, you know, obviously it's not a worry about reliability, but you know, obviously an engine hasn't been in use long enough to really test that theory out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they come up with, what their conclusions are ahead of their partnership with Rebel. Um, as for Toro Rosso, it almost doesn't matter whether they do well or not. Um, as long as they know what the relative performance of the car is, the primary goal is to assess drivers for the main Red Bull team. And if they're able to do that, then absolutely, that's great. And this year, it's had a little bit of a secondary role in helping Honda's development. So next year, uh, all eyes are going to be on Honda to see what they can actually do with uh, a team that should be fighting at the front. Let's move on to the ninth fastest team, which is the former Honda team, McLaren. Now, came into the season with great hopes and it, uh, yeah, rather came undone. They did finish sixth in the Constructors' Championship, which I would say is uh, 90% down to the efforts of Fernando Alonso, who is uh, a master at extracting good race performances out of uh, out of a difficult car. And he was, you could see he was someone who could really improvise with that car and, and hustle it to, to, to decent lap times. But overall, Gary, rude awakening for McLaren, isn't it? 
Yeah, we all said that, I think, at the beginning of the year, that, uh, that uh, this was a year that stand up and be counted because of moving to a Renault. Maybe Renault's not the best engine in the pit lane or power unit in the pit lane, but it's still, you know, it's a reliable package that uh, that does a certain job and there is somebody to measure you against from, in Red Bull. Yeah, they were 2% off on average performance, which yeah, yes. is a chasm. It's a, it's a chasm, to be honest. And, and you have to measure them against Red Bull. You, know, you, you, can, you can measure them against Renault as well. They were behind Renault, so it's, you know, still... It's still a big old a big old job for them, but um, I think we should measure the team of that level against Red Bull because it, you know that's where they, that's where they aim to be at least. And in fairness, know. they said Red Bull was their benchmark when they agreed the deal, yeah. so that that's judging them by their own standards. That's judging them by their own standards, and that's where they should be at least. You know, you drive into their factory; it's uh, it's not you know it's not a lockup somewhere. It's a, a big old concern. But the the biggest thing for me was as the season progressed, it got worse. It wasn't it wasn't a fact of you know we we've got this car that's a bit of a dog um, it actually didn't develop if you take them and Sauber you know at the beginning of the season it was the other way around um, Sauber was you know at the bottom of the pile and McLaren were doing a reasonable job and at the end of the season Sauber moved up into the top 10 and, and uh, McLaren have moved in to fight with Williams for the last in the grid so that was the team because as you know Fernando Alonso the one thing he has is a fighter and he's got enough experience to be always a fighter and to be stable so you can get a, you know, there's a stability in there that, that's good. For Van Dorn, very difficult deal because for a new young driver to come into a team and see, you know, the the uh, Verstappens and the Ocon and all those guys doing a good job and knowing that you probably just as, you know, knocking on doors being as good as any of them um, is, is hard to take. It's, it's hard to take all the time. It's hard to take whenever you're getting beaten by your teammate all the time as well. So for him, you know, I think part of his deficit is just losing faith in himself a little bit. But uh, McLaren, you know, they need to try harder, I think is the best way of putting it. And they've definitely got to do that for next year. And it seems the key problem, which is also what created a development, developmental brick wall, was that once they put lock on, once they're in the corners, they were struggling to control the, the aero around the front wheels. They were, downforce was kind of going away when they were in corners, having to run more wing. In order to, in, in order to get the levels of grip or something approaching levels of grip they wanted, so they're struggling on the straight. So, I mean, that seems quite a fundamental problem, and it seems to be one that's that's been there undetected before this season. Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing because for as long as I can remember, motor racing cars always went around corners, and and corners were where you want the downforce. You know, if you had a if you had a car that was only performing down the straight, well, you wouldn't really care too much; you'd just be drag. But you know, you look at the aerodynamic characteristics the minute you turn turn the steering wheel. You need good aerodynamic stability braking because, you know, centre pressure shift. If you can make it go rearwards whenever you hit the brake pedal, that's perfect because it gives the rear stability under braking. But then once you start to trans, um, transition the car into the corner, putting steering lock on, the car picks up roll, it picks up yaw. All of that characteristic changes how the aerodynamics work. And that is the thing that you have to analyse in depth until you're back in the straight line and you've got the throttle full open. That, that is the aerodynamic part of a car. Um, the rest of it is just it's just a drag reduction basically going down the straight. So I'm very surprised that McLaren are sort of saying, you know, we didn't know this. Because as I say, for as long as I can remember racing cars, they always put steering lock on going go around the corner and that's when you wanted them to work. So it's not something new. It's different because of the bigger tires, it's different because of the front wing widths, it's different because of everything, but it's different for everybody. And uh, you know, your team has to go with that difference and analyse it and set down a research programme that make sure you understand it in depth and your developments react to it and that doesn't seem to have happened 
I should say, Jake, as a result of them struggling with development, that they did start to dry up. There was a big, big upgrade at Spain, which yielded a bit of a step forward in performance. But then it just sort of got very difficult. And they did some experiments about next year and trying to understand things. So it's almost like the detail on the card is kind of the, the irrelevant in that they weren't able to actually get get the progress they expected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did see them turn up in Spain with a very interesting looking front nose had those three little uh apertures if you like to try and drive a little bit more airflow under the under the nose uh it was very very different to what they'd been running before uh which was very similar to the last year's car as well um but yeah it's nothing seemed to be working they'd throw things at it and it wouldn't stick uh they dropped their uh sort of overhanging rear wing end plates with all the little strakes on it and went for something a little bit more simple but it didn't seem to yield any performance dividends whatsoever. Um, any performance really, you know, was it seemed to be by luck. Maybe they'd have a good strategy or something, or because it wasn't through qualifying performance. Uh, Alonso might get a couple of points. There was about, oh, I think it was a 14 race streak where Van Dorn scored nothing. So it, I, I don't know where the performance went. They spent their Honda years telling everybody that it was the engine, we've got a good car. Okay, now you've got an engine which we know the relative power of, and the car's nowhere. So this is going to be... I assume they dropped the development quite quickly, um, and they needed to because next year they've got nowhere to hide. And it's just been an unstable car, rear instability all year. We can see it there in testing, and, and that's what's really limited Van Dorn. Van Dorn's kind of been constrained by that, whereas Alonso's managed to kind of live with it because he has got tremendous car control and he's not a, he's never been a classicist as a driver, Fernando Alonso. He can grab a car by the scruff of the neck. But yeah, the, the, I guess the big question with McLaren is have we seen any evidence this year they'll be able to reset next season? They've got all these, they had all these technical changes. James Key will be coming in, as I understand it, at some point next year, but it's not going to be before the start of the season. I think it's going to be a couple of months into the season before he can actually start working there. So just this state of flux feels like it's going to be carried into next year. Yeah, I haven't seen any evidence yet uh, of of moving forward. And, and I think it's very important that you do that, you know, to give yourself confidence for for next year as a team. I've always sort of pursued the fact that I needed to put developments on the car that I understood and that made the car better just to get the confidence that you knew where you were going to go to. Maybe you can't make the car, you know, a rocket ship, but you can at least influence it a little bit. And if the characteristics changes in the direction you think the characteristics should are supposed to change, then fine. But, you know, if you go back in time to the Bridgestone and, uh, and Mitchell and Tire War, um, the corner profile of the tires, you know, was different between those two tires. And, and that changed cars dramatically. And that, again, was just the airflow, you know, as you put steering lock on coming off the, off the front tire and how it influenced the car. And it was, you know, just back to back in the two tires, as we did a few times in my period um, with, with Stuart, um, when we started testing with the Michelin tyres, I mean, it changed the car characteristics completely. So, it's, as I say, it's nothing new, but you need to be able to sort of address that because nowadays, <clears throat> with all these vortex generation of from the front wing end plates and all this stuff that's making the rest of the car work better downstream, the front tyre and the front tyre characteristics with steering lock on it is a make or break. And that, you know, it needs to have a very high priority on your aerodynamic uh, research programme as to what happens whenever that happens. And, you know, very, the steering lock is varying all the time. So, you know, there's no two corners of the same, same sort of steering angle. So you have to do it's a, it's a lot of research and understanding it and, and making sure that it's working for you as opposed to against you. 
Well, let's round up this uh, technical review with another fallen giant, Williams, which brought up the rear by every performance index imaginable this season. Now, Gary, when the car was launched, you said it was a, it looked like a big step forward, a lot more complexity, etc. So clearly ambition there. But you did say, but of course, it all depends on how it all works and fits together. And it very rapidly became clear that Williams had kind of bitten off more than it, it could chew, that this was a car that had the, the ambition to be complex and kind of a almost a front-end car in terms of the, the way it's working, but not the research and the understanding and the processes to underpin being able to do that. So that that seems to be the story of Williams this year. Yeah, I mean, you can go down the pit lane, you can take your camera with you, you can take lots and lots of pictures, and you can go back and give the pictures to your design team and say, draw me one of those. Um, and, you know, adapt that part from a Mercedes to that part of a Ferrari or whatever, and run the rake on it like Red Bull and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and in theory... If you get it all right, you'll have a rocket ship. But it's not like that. Everything's working now. You know, everything's working as one. The whole car, the function of the whole car is set up by the, the first thing that's the airflow. So it's getting everything to just work together uh, as, a, as a unit. You can't, you know, there was times whenever people developed things like front wings or underfloor leading edges or whatever in isolation. And they would be okay because the airflow wasn't really influencing each other too dramatically. But now it does influence everything hugely dramatically. So um, Williams just never seemed to get on top of the fact that it was that it was causing them a grief somewhere along the line. And they had a diffuser stalling problem at the beginning of the year. I think it probably, in reality, carried on all the way through the season. Um, a bit similar to McLaren, in a way. You know, they've got rear-end instability, so they had to run more wing in the car to, to uh, help settle the car down. Williams... Same problem, but that's you know it's not the diffuser that's the problem. It's somewhere upstream that's causing a change in airflow, and straight ahead in the wind tunnel, going up and down through your right heights, all looks very good, no problems whatsoever. Go on the track, head for the first corner, and the rear end's just beside you, and you think, well, what happened there? I don't know. And for the driver, that's disconcerting. I mean, it's it's it just knocks your confidence, and then after a while as well of trying some developments and not getting on top of it, it knocks it again. So. Two newish guys in the car, so rocking up his first year and stroll his second year, and you know it's a it's a tough task. It's a tough task for them because, it, and the team's breaking down a little bit within itself as well. They've changed people and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's about consistency in every every avenue to try and make sure that you get on top of it. Um, they've learned a lot this year, hopefully, and if they learn a lot, maybe they can put it into practice next year. But I didn't really see any any signs of that basically right up to the end of the season similar to McLaren didn't really see the signs that it was on top of it understood it and could instigate the developments that would rectify it and you have to do that I think before this lull of the winter well Jake we did see some bits and pieces coming onto the car during the season it never seemed to really get to a to a point where they found a big step in performance I know they were quite confident when they brought the new front wing to Germany that that was a good direction but it seemed to be pretty much the same story to the end of the year. And the, the times when they were competitive and score points were Baku and Monza, the, 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 the low downforce circuits. And Sorokin did drag quite a good qualifying lap out of it in Monaco. But other than that, it was it varied. Well, there was a situation in Silverstone where what they'd brought to the car just made it infinitely worse. Uh, they brought a new rear end package, so new rear wing, new floor and diffuser. And... Uh, in practice, things seemed to be going just sort of normally. Uh, they were still quite way at the back. And then in qualifying, uh, it was I think it was at the end of the Wellington straight, uh, Stroll just completely went off. He hit the brakes, nothing really happened, and the car just span around. And uh, a couple of minutes later, exactly the same thing happened to Sorokin. And it was just 
the stalling problem at the rear of the car just got infinitely worse. And it's been such a difficult year for them as well. Um, I don't know if we expected it or not. It, obviously, in testing it, things didn't look great. Two inexperienced drivers. Um, we sort of knew perhaps where Stroll could be. Uh, yeah, I suppose Massa was a bit of an aging benchmark by that point, but he'd run him, you know, within about 0.3 of a second behind. Um, Sorokin comes in as well, very, very inexperienced. Uh, but he, you know, he's got an engineering degree, uh, scored the highest score on Williams' engineering aptitude test and was spending most of his time in the factory trying to help the team. Uh, he's paying God knows how much for his drive and he's paying for essentially a job helping Williams try and suss out their problems. So it's been a very testing year for everybody. I think they'll just be glad to see the back of 2018 fresh driver lineup, fresh impetus for next year. And hopefully they'll get a little bit closer to the front. Yeah. I think it's a thankless task being a Williams driver during the season. In fact, we looked at it very often. Stroll and Sorokin ended up in about the same bit of track by the end of end of the race, and I think that normally just showed it was just a car regressing regressing to the mean. It didn't really have many high points. I guess Monza was the exception, where Stroll got into Q three and then managed to get points, and Sorokin did pick up a point once the Haas was excluded. So yeah, tough season for Williams. Uh, well, thanks very much to Gary Anderson and to Jake Boxer Leg for their insights into the, the technical developments of the 2018 Formula One season. Hear lots more from both of them next season. And please head to autosport.com for the latest news on Formula One and the whole world of motorsport and our plus subscriber area where you can read the world's leading motorsport journalists on all sorts of topics. And of course, we have the regular Ask Gary Anderson and Gary's uh, columns on there, which are always very popular. Check out Sister Titles F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. AT&T Fiber presents A Straightforward Moment. Your wine? Thanks. I'll pretend I know what I'm doing before saying it's good. And I'll pretend I don't know you're pretending. Are you a gagillionaire? Yeah, I have AT&T Fiber. The straightforward pricing has inspired me to be more straightforward. Me too. 
Ugh, this wine. I'll fetch you a better one. Straightforward is better. No equipment fees, no data caps, no price increase at 12 months. Live like a gagillionaire with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.